All right, we're going to be in the book of 2 Kings tonight. And it's been a little while since we looked at Elisha, but let's jump back in there and, and look at old Elisha tonight. And we're going to be in chapter 3. And I preached a message a couple weeks ago about the event that is in chapter 3 here. And really didn't focus so much on Elisha as I did... Um, as I did, uh, really just God giving these, uh, these Israelites, uh, the armies of Israel, the armies of Judah, the armies of Edom, giving them water in the wilderness. But I want to focus a little bit more on that water in the wilderness. In fact, that's what I want to preach on tonight. I'm just going to call it water in the wilderness. And I want to just to refresh our memory of what's going on here in our text. Of course, Elisha is the prophet and uh, chapter 2, that transition is made. And then, of course, he makes his way to the waters of Jericho and they are parted. And then he makes his way to Jer- uh, the waters, I'm sorry, the waters of Jordan. They're parted. Then he makes his way to the waters of Jericho and they're healed. And then he makes his way uh, to Bethel. And uh, he is mocked by the, uh, the 42 children. And, of course, the she-bears, well, more than 42, I'm sure, children, but the two she-bears come out and uh, kill 42 of them. And so we looked at that grisly story. And uh, then, uh, it's, it's not a funny story, y'all. That's bad. But then we're going to be in chapter 3 tonight, and I want to begin reading in verse 6, of course, uh, what has happened is Jehoram is the king. He is reigning in his father's stead. Actually, technically, he's reigning in his brother's stead. His father was Ahab. He has passed away. His brother Ahaziah took the throne, but then he also fell. And you remember, he, uh, he was uh, confronted by Elijah, at least his messengers were. And uh, he ended up uh, dying there just like Elijah told him that he would. And so now Jehoram is the king in his brother's stead, and, uh, but has to deal with the same issue that started uh, in his brother's reign, and that was Moab has rebelled. Moab was a nation that had been conquered by the nation of Israel. And what that meant was it meant mostly financial gain, not just property that is under the control of Israel, but it meant that they had to pay taxes. They had to pay tribute to Israel. And so it was financial gain. In fact, I believe that financial uh, uh, remuneration is, uh, is made in verse 4. It's, uh, let's see, rendered to the king of Israel. Yeah, here it is, verse 4. 100,000 lambs and 100,000 rams with the wool. Uh, it doesn't say, but it would have been on some kind of a regular basis, probably annually or biannually or something like that. That was a payment that was made to the nation of Israel because they had conquered them. Well, the death of Ahab, you know what that means? It's time for rebellion. We're going to see if we can't get out. They're having their own little tea party right here. They're going to see if they can, they can get out of this taxation. Uh, and, uh, and so they rebel. Well, Jehoram says, no, we got to keep these folks under our thumb and we need the money, we need the financial uh, aid, and we need their taxes, and so uh, we're going to have to put them back in submission. All right, and so that's what he does, except Jehoram looks around and he looks at the armies of Israel and he says, you know what, I'm not sure exactly if we are enough 
to get the job done. So he calls down to uh, Jehoshaphat, which is the king of Judah. The kingdom is divided. Israel's divided at this point. Israel in the north, Judah in the south. Jehoshaphat's king of the south. And he says, hey, Jehoshaphat, will you help me out? Jehoshaphat says, yes. And so he does. He helps them out. And then they ask the king of Edom if he'll, he'll join in. And so he says yes. And so now instead of one king, you have three kings and three armies. And we're going to pick up reading in about verse number. I'll tell you what, since I went ahead and gave a couple of background here, let's, go, let's look at verse number 8. They're deciding which way to go to, to begin this military campaign. And he said, which way shall we go up? And he answered, the way through the wilderness of Edom. So the king of Israel went, and the king of Judah, and the king of Edom, and they fetched a compass of seven days' journey, and there was no water for the host and for the cattle that followed them. So there's the problem right there. Seven days into the wilderness, they get out there, and whatever water source they were counting on, it was not there. And so they're out there, no water for their, for their men and for their cattle, for their animals. And so they're just going to die in the wilderness. But the king of Israel said, Alas, that the Lord hath called these three kings together to deliver them at the hand of Moab. But Jehoshaphat said, Is there not here a prophet of the Lord that we may inquire of the Lord by him? And one of the king of Israel's servants answered and said, Here is Elisha, the son of Shaphat, which poured water on the hands of Elijah. And Jehoshaphat said, The word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him. And Elisha said unto the king of Israel, What have I to do with thee? Get thee to the prophets of thy father and to the prophets of thy mother. And the king of Israel said unto him, Nay, for the Lord hath called these three kings together to deliver them into the hand of Moab. And Elisha said, As the Lord of hosts liveth before whom I stand, surely were it not that I regard the presence of Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, I would not look toward thee, nor see thee. But now bring me a minstrel. And it come to pass, came to pass when the minstrel played, uh, that the hand of the Lord came upon him, and he said, Thus saith the Lord, Make this valley full of ditches. For thus saith the Lord, You shall not see wind, neither shall you see rain. Yet that valley shall be filled with water, that ye may drink both ye and your cattle and your beasts. And this is but a light thing in the sight of the Lord. He will deliver the Moabites into your hand, and ye shall smite every fence city and every choice city, and shall fell every good tree, and stop all wells of water, and mark every good piece of land with stones. And it came came to pass in the morning when the meat offering was offered that, behold, there came water by the way of Edom, and the country was filled with water. Now, I'm going to stop reading right there just for right now, but I do want to mention and notice a couple things in the remaining verses of this, of this chapter. Of course, the miracle that is performed for us here by the hand of the prophet Elisha is water in a place where there ought to be no water. Water in a place where there is no water. Water in a place where, uh, where uh, a water source is absolutely depleted and all of a sudden they wake up in the morning and the valley, the country that they are in, it is absolutely filled with water and it came in such a way, it wasn't rain from heaven and even if it was, that would have been God because he's the one that sends the rain and he sends the sunshine. But it absolutely came in a way that uh, uh, was, uh, was uh, there was exclusively, uh, only God could get the credit exclusively. Only he could have done it. God did it and he did it through the prophet Elisha. The message in this miracle, the message of the water in the wilderness is this, is that God 
not only can, but He does graciously and abundantly provide for His people when they are in their most desperate hour of need. And aren't you thankful that we serve a God like that? We serve a God that is able and willing and has. He has a track record of time and time again providing for His people when they are in their most desperate hour, when there is no help anywhere else to be had, when it looks like all hope is lost, I'm thankful that we have a God that can provide water in a wilderness. A wilderness is a dry place. A wilderness is a dead place. A wilderness is a death place. A wilderness is a desperate place. A wilderness is, 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 a, uh, is a destructive place. And I'm going to tell you something, God specializes and He likes to move in those kind of situations and He likes to provide water for His people. What a simple thing. Something we take for granted all the time, isn't it? Water. But listen, you can't live long without it. You can't live long without it. In fact, I'm going to tell you something. Uh, uh, if you've ever had to go without water in your house, I'm not talking about just not having water around, but just not having water flowing in your house, you realize what you have taken for granted. Right, Has anybody ever had to go without water in your house for whatever reason? Listen, that, that is the only utility I've ever had cut off in our house. I've had the water cut off before. I'm ashamed to say that. I guess I shouldn't say that. I'm ashamed to say it. I've never had the electricity cut off. I've never had a home foreclosed. I've never had a car repossessed. But I've had the water cut off. And I, it may have happened more than once. It, it mainly happened when we lived over here in Silver Valley. I, I, uh, I, 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 when we, me and Heather got married, we, we moved in the, in the house there at the church in Georgia. And we never paid the utilities. The church just paid the utility bill. They were a blessing to do that and let us live in the parsonage there. And so we never had to worry about it. And then we moved over here and we lived in a little single wide over here. And the church paid the utility bill and never had to, I never paid a water bill, never paid an electric bill in my life. I never paid a water bill, never paid an electric bill. And we moved over here and we rented a little double wide over here in Silver Valley. And, and then I started getting utility bills in the mail. You know what? And I thought, you know, I don't know if this is all it's cracked up to be. Amen. Having, I like it when somebody else pays the bills. Amen. And, uh, and so we started getting utility. And of course that electric bill, it was, uh, I don't remember what it was, a couple, you know, $100, maybe more. I don't remember what it, what it was back then but but uh, but my water bill was only I don't know it come in it was like $13, $14, $15. It wasn't that much at all. And I guess because of the amount, I guess because it was just such an insignificant bill, I would just toss it aside. And I never, I, the electric bill that come in, I'm like, oh man, that's $180. I better pay that right now. And I'd pay it right then. You know, our our uh, our, uh, our rent our rent was uh, whatever, I don't remember, $750 a month. I mean, I wrote that check. I'm talking about every, every, every month, the first of the month I wrote the check. I put it in an envelope. I put it in the mail. I'm, I mailed that every every time and uh, but that water bill I think we had our water cut off a couple times and uh, and I just forget to pay the $14 and, and you take it for granted that you turn on a little faucet and water just comes flowing out man that's a blessing amen you take it for granted that you know you just push the handle and you know it flushes that's a blessing right there how many of y'all remember growing up when there wasn't water running through the house anybody like that anybody ever uh, read that book, you know, uh, what is it, uh, 20 Steps to the Outhouse by, by author Willie Make It. I don't know if uh, <laughs> you ever read that or not, but 
Man, I'm glad. I'm glad I live in a day where you just turn on the faucet and there it is. But man, what we take for granted, what is so simple, what is so, what is so common, what is so everywhere around us, we, we take it for granted that there it always is in abundance whenever, whenever we need it. They get out here seven days and whether it was poor planning on their part or it just, uh, it just happened to whatever water source they were counting on was all dried up. Whatever it is, they're out here and they don't have anything. And you imagine how wonderful it was when God rescued them in the wilderness in their hour of need. That was their lifeline. That was the one thing they could not live without. And this story is a reminder that it doesn't matter how powerful your armies are. And it doesn't matter how tight your alliances are. And it doesn't doesn't matter how powerful your weaponry is. And it doesn't matter what kind of a a, a game plan that you have. And what kind of a strategy you you have. Listen, there are simple things of life that you cannot live without and they are the things that God provides. And we have our money and we have our jobs and we have our credit cards and we have our 401ks and we have our plans and we have our strategies and we have all the things that we have. But I want to tell you what, friend, if it were not for God sustaining you and providing for you just the simplest things that you take for granted, the very breath that you just breathed in your lungs, uh, uh, the very roof that you have waiting on you at home tonight over your family's head, the car in, your, in the parking lot out here to take you home, the very simplest things of life that we take for granted. We are reminded sometimes. Sometimes God takes uh, things from us and we're flat on our back and we got to be reminded we ain't got nothing without Him. We are nothing without Him. Just a simple thing. Something they, 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 they probably was just an act. It wasn't part of the grand scheme, the grand plan. And, uh, but they realized they were about to die without it. And the simple truth is this tonight is that we need God. We need Him. We need His provision. We need His power. We're nothing without Him. And fortunately, when we come desperately to Him, I'm thankful that He'll meet our needs. And it doesn't matter what the situation might be, and I'm glad God can provide water in the wilderness. I wanted to give you just a couple observations from the text tonight, and, uh, and then we'll go home tonight. I wanted to first, as I began to read this, I thought about a couple things that I see here in this text. And The first thing I noticed, I think it's one of the things that stands out, maybe above anything else. I've heard preaching on this, maybe you have too, but I want to call it this. First of all, the condition that was met the condition that was met. Before the water flows through the wilderness, there was a condition that had to be met uh, here in the wilderness. And you see that in verse number 16. The prophet says to the people, Thus saith the Lord, make this valley full of ditches. There it is. There's the condition that must be met. And you know, many times that's how God operates, isn't it? Isn't it? He's, he's a gracious God. He's a giving God. He's a generous God. He's He's a caring God. He's a sharing God. No doubt about that. But he says, before I meet your need, I want you to do something. I, I want you to do something to, uh, 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 to prepare for, for what I'm about to give you. The simple truth was this. If they didn't dig any ditches, they weren't going to get any water. They had to have some ditches before they got any water. And isn't it amazing that God is willing, and he's done this so many times, God is willing to excuse and even overlook, and a lot of times he'll overlook our food. 
foolishness and He will overlook our, our ignorance and He will overlook stupid, foolish, bad decisions that we make and He will bless us anyway and He will help us anyway and that's where they are. There's a lot of foolish decisions going on into this plan, into this scheme right here but yet God is willing to help them anyway. But I'm going to tell you something God will not overlook and that is when He gives you a clear, plain command and He says, listen, here is what you need to do if you want me to bless you, here is what you need to do. God will not overlook those things that He tells us explicitly, plainly to do. God will bless ignorance sometimes. God will overlook and even bless us in spite of our foolishness sometimes. But God will never bless us in spite of our explicit disobedience. When God clearly commands us to do something, He expects us to do it before He'll do His part. I'm going to tell you, that's true. I've seen it. I, I've, seen, I've seen some churches that they haven't had as much light as some other churches. They don't know. They're doing the best they can. And man, God's pouring out blessings on them. They're seeing souls saved. They're, man, all, and they, they may not have every I dotted just like we would want, every T crossed just like we want, but God's moving there and God's doing something there. You know why? Because some of them people, they just don't know. They just believe God and they trust God and God's blessing them. But I tell you what, I've seen some churches, man, they're gun barrel straight. They dot every I. They dot every, they dot cross every T or whatever they're supposed to do. And they have it all just right. They got every standard right. They got every theological principle right. They got the right Bible and they got the right music and they got the right thing but there are people that are not right with God and they know they're not right with God. They're holding grudges against somebody else and they got bitterness in their heart. Listen, there's secret sin in their life and there's clear disobedience against the explicit command of God and I'm going to tell you what, God ain't even within a million miles of that place. God wants to bless a place but we got to get where we are blessable and that's what digging ditches was for them. That was a clear command. God said, I'm willing to overlook your foolishness. I'm willing to overlook all these things. But you are going to have to obey some clear commands, some clear things. It's, it is absolutely imperative for your survival. If you're going to get the water, you are going to have to obey. And instead of asking God to bless what we're doing, you better pick up a shovel and start doing what He said He'd bless. Amen. And that's exactly where these people are. they got a decision. Now... I read after a few commentators in the past few weeks that pointed out that it never does say that anybody picked up a shovel or that anybody dug a ditch. And some have even implied that they didn't do it and God blessed them anyway. I say hogwash on all that. I don't believe it. If, God, if Elijah told them to make this valley full of ditches and then they would get the water and then the Bible says and it came to pass, verse 20, in the morning that, that the water flowed from Edom. I'll tell you what that means. It means somebody picked up a shovel. Somebody did something. Somebody dug some ditches in that valley because God blesses obedience. So even though it's not in the text where somebody absolutely does it, I believe it's implied, don't you, that makes absolute sense that that they did it, they met the condition. What did it mean for them to, what did it mean when they were digging these ditches? What did it mean for them to make this valley full of ditches? What, what did that mean? I'll tell you what that was. That was preparation is what that was. They were simply preparing for God's blessing. They were preparing for God's provision. They had to have some, that's what we're doing. Listen, we're getting ready for revival. I can't help but think about it. Just revival's been on my mind and, and the context of revival. We need water just like we need the wind to blow. We need water from heaven. All these are symbols of, of revival, God moving. You know why? Because that's 
something you cannot do. You cannot produce the wind. The wind bloweth where it listeth. You can hear the sound thereof, but you can't tell where it's coming from. You can't tell where it's going. That is a God thing. Only God can make the wind blow. You can't make the rain fall from heaven. That is a God thing. You can plant and, and, you, can, and you can prepare and you can take a shovel and you can dig these ditches, but all of it is only preparatory work. It is preparing for what God is doing. And when I think about it in context of revival, God, send the rain. God, send the water. God, give us water in the wilderness. I think that there's got to be some preparation work and that's what God wants us to do. He wants us to break up our fallow ground. He wants us to act in obedience. And I'm going to tell you something, friend. Until we do some preparatory work, God's going to withhold the water in our wilderness. Somebody's got to pick up a shovel. And listen, digging ditches. Hey, listen, ain't nobody, ain't no, no kid grows up saying, you know what, when I get older, I'll tell you what I want to be. I want to be a dig, a, wait, a ditch digger. Now, if that's what you are, God bless you. We need them, amen. But I'm just saying, that's not, you know why? Because that's hard work. I heard one preacher said that he had a PhD, amen. He had a post hole digging degree, amen. Sounds great. But, Nobody, I mean, that's hard work. Nobody wants to do that. Not everybody volunteer. I mean, you know, digging is hard work. Digging holes, that's hard work. I'm going to tell you what. It's humble work. It's a lowly job. It's a lowly work. I'm going to tell you what. It was absolutely necessary for this water to flow. And I'm going to tell you something. Getting right with God sometimes is hard work. Sometimes it's, a, it's doing a job you don't want to do. Sometimes it's apologizing to somebody you don't want to apologize to. Sometimes it's going across the aisle and getting right with somebody you don't want to get right with. Sometimes it's getting rid of some sin in your life that you love and things that, that you're in love. Sometimes it's, it's, a, it's, it's taking up your cross and following Jesus. It's denying yourself. It's turning this off and giving that up and giving this over. And sometimes that's what it is. But I'll tell you what, the water ain't going to flow till we do. Everybody listening? Somebody's got to pick up a shovel and prepare. If we want God to do a work here, somebody's got to get ready for it. It's making a place for God to put the blessing. That's what it is. Because listen, if there weren't any ditches in the valley, if there weren't any di- or in their wilderness, if there weren't any, there weren't any. Di- you know what that was? It, it was very practical. It was a very practical thing. It wasn't just God looking up in heaven and saying, "What's something really, really hard I can make them do just to see if they really want water." You think that's what God was doing? How about this? There had to be a place for the water to stop. That's what a ditch is, for it to flow, for where they could, where they could actually go to it and get something to drink out of it. It was preparing for the blessings of God. And I'm going to tell you what, that's what we need to do. What, need, what ditches need to be dug in your life right now that will prepare you for the blessings of God. Lord, we want revival. We want revival. God send revival. I don't know. I don't know about all that. Man, if we're not willing to pick up a shovel and make God a place to put it, where God, where's, where's he going to put it? If God sent it, where would it, where would it land? Our, our hearts, are they ready? Is there a place for God to pour out his blessings on our church? Your home, our life. It's preparation. It's expectation, isn't it? 
Isn't digging a ditch, isn't that an act of faith? And then say, Lord, I'm going to do my part. God, you do your part. God, I'm expecting you. Lord, this hole right here that I'm digging, this ditch right here that I'm digging, Lord, I'm expecting you. I'm expecting you to fill it up. I'm expecting you to put something in it. God, I'm going to make an empty place. God, fill it up with your blessings. Expecting God to do something. I'll tell you why we don't see God doing a lot these days is because we don't really expect God to do a whole lot. I wonder how many of y'all come in here on a Sunday night. On a Sunday night. Just to, to wake up from your nap and come to church on a Sunday night. How you come, come to church on a Sunday night thinking, you know what? Tonight could be the night revival breaks out at the Walters Grove Baptist Church. I wonder if that even crossed your mind tonight. That even crossed my mind tonight. I'll tell you what it is for the preacher sometimes. Well, it's another Sunday night. Got to get ready. Got to have a message. Who's going to sing? What are we going to do? Is it, you know, what are, this and that. And that. Why does it ever cross our mind that God may want to interrupt all of our schedule right here and do something that only He can do? He might want to pour some water in our wilderness during these days. Yeah, that shovel, that was that God. We're expecting God. We're going to do our part. It's what you told us to do. God, you told me to do this. God, you put it on my heart. God, you gave me explicit command to do this. And God, I don't understand what you're going to do. I don't understand what's going to happen next. I don't know. I don't understand why we got to make this whole valley full of ditches around here. I don't know all that you're doing, God. But all I know is every time I put my shovel in the dirt, God, that's me expecting you to do something around here. Do we expect it? Do we expect it? Preparation. It was expectation. I'll tell you what it was. It was desperation is what it was. You know why it was desperation? It's because, listen, when you're about to die in the wilderness, what else are you going to do? Except do the only thing that you think might work. And when, you are, when you are about to die in the wilderness and you don't have anything to drink, what, what, else, what else could they do? I guarantee you before the king of Israel, Jehoram, he was so full of pride. His heart was so full of idolatry. He did not want to honor, the, he did not want to honor Jehovah God. The last thing in the world he wanted to do is go to Elisha and ask for help. I promise you he thought of everything else that he could do. He, I'm sure he exhausted every other means that he could possibly exhaust to try to fix this problem and solve this situation all by himself and all on his own. But he's at the very, very end of his rope. Nothing else left to do. And so at the very, very end of himself, he says, All right, boys, let's grab some shovels. We're going to dig some ditches because there ain't nothing else left to do. And I believe God wants us to get to that point. Every, You know what they were digging in that wilderness? They were digging a bunch of holes is what it was. And I think every one of them holes, that, those ditches, you know what they were? You know, you know what's in a hole? You know what's in a hole? Somebody asked me that question one time. They said, said, how much dirt is in a hole three feet wide and five and a half feet deep? How much dirt? Does anybody know? Just call it out if you know. That's exactly right. There ain't no dirt in a hole. It's a hole. <laughs> Don't matter how wide or how deep it is. Ain't nothing. You know what every one of them holes were a reminder of? You know, how many of them, you know what those ditches were a reminder of? Reminder of, look in that hole right there. That's what you got without God. You ain't got nothing. You ain't got anything. Your belly is empty. Your mouth is empty. Your wallet is empty. Your life is empty without God. And I'm going to tell you something. That is exactly what we are. And that is where we are without God. We are nothing. We have nothing. All we got is a bunch of empty without Him. Every one of them holes were a reminder that that is what we have without them. Nothing. We need them. Without them, we're absolutely 
doomed. So somebody's got to do the work. Somebody's got to... Somebody's got to meet the conditions. Obey God. God blesses obedience. God ain't going to bless a bunch of stinking rebels that are rebelling against God and holding things in their heart and sin and rebellion and pride. I'm telling you, God ain't going to get it with anywhere near that stuff right there. Man, may we humble ourselves, pick up our shovel, and do what we're supposed to do and expect God to send water in our wilderness. It's the only way it's going to happen. I believe it with all my heart. There's got to be some conditions that are met. That's what he told. And I understand them promises for Israel, but it tells us the the character of God. You do your part, I'll do my part. He said, if my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I'll hear from heaven. Then I'll forgive their sin. Then I'll heal their land. I'm going to tell you what, we serve an if-then God many times. Listen, God is gracious to bless us in spite of ourselves. But then there are times where he puts his finger and he explicitly says, all right, creation. You're going to have to do this and you ain't getting a drop of anything until you fix this right here. Chris, you better pick up your shovel right now and do what I told you to do. The Holy Ghost ever talked to y'all like that? Holy Ghost sounds a lot like my daddy growing up. I don't know. I just felt like my dad right there. You better do what I told you to do or you ain't getting nothing. Amen. There's got to be the conditions that are met. If he said make that valley full of ditches, you better make that valley full of ditches. If he said pick up that shovel and start digging, you better pick up that shovel and start digging. And so I guess my question is tonight to our church, who's going to pick up the shovel? Who's going to be the first one? Who's going to be the first one to obey God and say, all right, I want some water here. I need, we need God to move. We need God to do something. Who's going to do it? Who's going to do it? Pick up their shovel and start obeying God. What would happen if our church had a just a church full of ditch diggers and we started preparing and we started expecting and we started realizing we ain't got nothing without him and man we picked up our shovels and we got to work I wonder I just believe God I just believe God's gracious enough and God's good enough now I'll tell you what he'll do I believe if we start making room for it if we start making holes for it if we start making ways for it I believe God will put water in our wilderness I believe that with all my heart I believe it with all my heart conditions that were met I show you another observation here, not only the conditions that were met, but I see the cooperation that was made. I thought this was very interesting here, that how this miracle unfolded, because it's not just Elisha. It's a miracle involved. It was more than just Elisha. In fact, Elisha looks like he never even would have known what to tell these people what to do in verse 16 unless he had verse 15. In verse 15, he said, Now bring me a minstrel. You know what that is? That's a bluegrass picker is what that is. You look that up, that's a banjo picker. That's what that word means. It's somebody that plucks the strings. Somebody that plays. Now, I'm sure it was some kind of harp or maybe he was a sackbut. I don't know what a sackbut is, but maybe he plays a sackbut. Maybe is what it is. And anyway, he's playing this thing. He's playing some music. And I'm going to tell you what, Elisha, the great man of God, Elisha's a wonderful man of God. Elisha's in tune with God. He's already performed all these miracles, no doubt about it. He's doing all this stuff and all these things. But I'm going to tell you something. Elisha never could have done what he did if it weren't for this minstrel. I don't know I, I, I don't know exactly what is going on in Elisha's life, but here's what I think. I do know this. Elisha's a great man of God. Elisha's God. No doubt about that. No doubt about that but he is a man he is a man I'm going to tell you something about men something you may not know I'm going to tell you something about men men get sideways sometimes 
Men get out of sorts sometimes. I'm not just talking about the male species. I'm talking about humanity. I'm telling you, we're not always as close to God as we need to be. Now, I don't want to get struck by lightning or anything by suggesting that Elisha may not be as close to God. But I tell you what, he didn't have the hand of God on him. You know why? Because he didn't get the hand of God on him until this dude started playing the sackbut or banjo or psaltery or whatever it is, the harp. He didn't have, and then it said, then, then, it was when the minstrel played that the hand of the Lord came upon him. So he wasn't living with the hand of God on him. And I, I don't know. Now, I like some stuff that he tells old Jehoram in those previous verses. Jehoram comes to him and says, hey, we need help. I think God's, tra- God's brought us out here. He's trying to kill us. And I like what Elisha said. Elisha says, why don't you go to the prophets of your mama? Where's old Jezebel's prophets at? Now, I'm going to be honest. I like that. But I can't say with 100% certainty he was in the will of God when he said that. Now, maybe he was. I don't know. The Bible, you got to understand, sometimes the Bible is descriptive, not prescriptive. Or prescriptive. How do you want to say it? What, how do you say it? Is it prescription or prescription? Is it prescription? <laughs> yeah, whatever. That the doctor gives you, you know, giving you something to do. Sometimes the Bible's just telling you what happened. It ain't saying you're Elisha and you need to go say the same thing. And I like it when, when Elisha looks at old Jehoram and says, you know what? If it wasn't for Joshua having been here, I wouldn't, even, I wouldn't even look at you. I wouldn't even look in your direction. So it's, <laughs> I'm putting all this together and I'm wondering, I'm wondering when it comes down time for them to need to know what they need to do to get a miracle from God, Elijah said, all right, I'm going to need some music for a little bit. <laughs> I'm going to have to have one song before I preach, all right? Because old Elisha just had a fight with the deacons out in the hallway. And he said, I'm going to tell you what, I'm going to have to, I'm going to have, we've got to have one special. If somebody just sing me a special, I think I can get right with God real quick and I, I can tell you what God's saying. Now, I'm not saying Elisha was way of the will of God or Elijah's some rebel. All I'm saying is he realized he needed the hand of God upon him. And when he called for a musician, one came. A musician was there. And then Elijah is there. I see three parts of this thing, which is this whole cooperative thing that is going on here. You have the man that could play. He can't prophesy. He's not a prophet. He's a musician. But yet he has his part. And he no pun intended, he plays his part. And Elisha gets in tune with God. Those are my jokes for tonight, all right? But we need the musician. And yes, we need the prophet. Nobody else can do what Elisha did. God didn't call anybody else to get the word of God. Only Elisha receives the word of God. Only Elisha is the one that tells what God has said. He's the one that receives it. And so the the musician did what Elisha could not do. And Elisha did what the musician could not do. And then it took a whole host of... How in the world can one person make a whole valley full of ditches? You can't do that. It took an army of people. It took armies of people cooperating, picking up a shovel and digging because they only had one night to do it. They had to make the valley full of ditches in one night. You know what that is? That is a cooperative program. That is a cooperation that was needed in order to get the miracle. The musician did his part and Elisha did his part and the workers did his part and God honored each of them working together. It was a trifecta of revival essentials. They needed worship and they needed the word and they needed the work being done and all of that is included in this text right here and in the middle of musicians and ditch diggers. you got a prophet sandwiched right in the middle and they're all doing what God has especially gifted and equipped them to do. And because they all work together, guess what? God sent the water. Isn't that amazing? 
that amazing? There's a cooperation that is going on here. And the minstrel brought the hand of the Lord on Elisha. And the prophet brought the word of the Lord to the people. And the workers carried out the will of God and dug the ditches. And God did what none of them can do. And all of them were needed. The minstrel, without the minstrel, listen, Elisha would not have been able to receive the word of God. Without Elisha, the people would not have been able to know the word of God. Without the workers, none of them would have been able to carry out the word of God. I'm going to tell you something. It was all of these people working together in cooperation. And I'm going to tell you what it's needed for a revival in any church, this church and any church, and that is everybody to get in their place and do what God has gifted them to do. Get in your place. Get in your place. We need the musicians. We need the preachers. We need the workers. We need all of it. And though we might elevate one job above another, and we might say Elisha has the most important job, or the musician has the most talented job, or, or the, 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 the ditch diggers have the most necessary job. Can I tell you what? I don't believe God looks down and sees in anything like that at all. What He sees is the body that He's put together and the group of people that He has brought together and that He has equipped them. If God has put a shovel in your hand and strength in your body, then dig a ditch. If God has put skill in your fingers and music in your heart and your mind then play your music if God has shown you the word of the Lord and given you the gift to proclaim the word of God then you need to do it I'm going to tell you something do what God has called you to do and God will bless and he'll send he'll send the water you need to get involved they need to find your place that's why everybody is important in the work of God we need everybody doing what God has called them to do see the <clears throat> the cooperation that was made, the conditions that were made. I'm going to give you one last one and I, I'm done tonight. I want to call it the consequences that were manifested. Because we see the water came, right? Verse 20, it came to pass in the morning when the meat offering was offered. But behold, there came water by the way of Edom. And the country was filled with water. Wow, I love it too. They offered this meat. While they were worshiping, God sent the water. They worshiped. They worshipped, and while they worshipped, there came water. Man, isn't that good right there? But what happened when the water came? What happened when the water, and this is a whole message in and of itself, and I ain't going to preach it, I'm just going to give it to you. In fact, Miss Maddie, you can come to the piano, I'm done tonight. What happened when the water came? I'll tell you what, what, the people were sustained, right? That's the main thing that happened when the water came. Guess what? They lived. <laughs> That's like what was the whole point of the whole miracle, right? They lived. The people were sustained. I'm telling you what it did to them. It refreshed them. It, 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 it sustained them. It preserved them. But then it did something to their enemies as well. It did something to that. That water did something to their enemies that they would have never been able to do by themselves. That water confused their enemy, defeated their enemy, and angered their enemy. It did three things to their enemies, and you can read that in the text. The Bible says, let me just read a little bit of it. Verse 21, And when all the Moabites heard that the kings were come up to fight against them, they gathered all that were able to put on armor. So here's the Moabites. They're going to defend their, defend their territory and upward and uh, stood in the border. Verse 22, And they rose up early in the morning. And look here, the sun shone upon the water. So the water had filled these ditches, and then the sun shines down upon this water. And the Moabites saw the water on the other side as red as blood. You know what they saw when they saw the sun shining on that water? It looked like ditches that were full of blood. And here's the conclusion that they come to. Verse 23, And they said, This is blood. 
The kings are surely slain, and they have smitten one another. Now therefore, Moab to the spoil. And so they had just assumed, you know what? These three armies, three kings, they're all trying to help each other. But, you know, sometimes people don't get along. and Maybe they started fighting amongst themselves. And now the kings are dead and the people have smitten one another in this valley. You know why? Because they thought there's no way in the world there could be water over there. You know why? Because it didn't rain. No water came from heaven. If it had rained, if God had rained the water down from heaven, then they would have known those those, that valley's full of water is what that is. But they knew it wasn't water in there because God gave them a private flow. God gave them a, a secret supply of water that only they knew about. And it confused their enemies. They thought they were mad at each other when really they had never been in more unity in their life. Isn't that amazing how God can take what blesses us and He can confuse the enemy with it? And I'm going to tell you something. What makes the biggest impact on our enemy confuses him is when the church is getting along and we're in unity. And I'm going to tell you what, we're in a state of revival. Listen, I'm going to tell you what, what that does to our enemy. It confuses them. It defeats them because here they come. They think they're going to take over all the spoil, all the things that they've left behind. And when they came, verse 24, to the camp of Israel, the Israelites rose up, smote the Moabites, for they fled before them. But they went forward, smiting the Moabites, even in their country. And they beat down the cities. Now, verse 25, you need to draw a line from verse 25 to verse 19. That's what Elisha told them what happened. They beat down the cities and of every good piece of land cast every man in his stone and filled it. And they stopped all the wells of water and felled all the good trees. Only in Kirhar Seth left they the stones thereof. Howbeit the slingers went about and smote it. And when the king of Moab saw that the battle was too sore for him, he took with him 700 men that drew swords to break through even into the king of Edom. But they could not. They were defeated. What blessed them defeated. What blessed the people of God defeated the enemies of God. I'm going to tell you what, that's the way God works. God can take the blessing that He gives us and He can use that to turn the enemy into naught. The people were sustained. The enemies of Israel were confused, defeated. And they were angry too because the Bible says in verse 27, there was great indignation against Israel. I'll just hit this real quick. I want to tell you something. Don't be surprised when God blesses a people. God, God revives. When there's revival, it's always going to make somebody angry. No matter wherever there's worship, there's always somebody that gets mad about it. And it made them indignant. But here's what I want you to see, and I'm done. The people were sustained. The enemies were confused and defeated and angry. But God was glorified, and God was magnified. Because here's what's amazing to me, and it's amazing that I don't know, it's amazing that this is even included in the text here. It's got to be here for a reason, and let me give you why I think. But verse 27 says, Then he, that's the king of Moab, he took his eldest son that should have reigned in his stead and offered him for a burnt offering upon the wall. The king of Moab, seeing that he was defeated, he took his son and he sacrificed him. I mean, uh, obviously to one of their gods upon the wall. Of course, they believed that every victory, every defeat was a, was a gift or a curse or a judgment from one of their gods. So he's trying to appease whatever god was supposedly angry at them. They lost. They lost the battle, so that meant God, their God was angry with them. 
So this king of Moab, he took his oldest son that was supposed to take over the throne after he died. And he took his old. Think about this. Hold on. I'm almost done. Listen. He took his oldest son and he killed him. And the Bible includes that in here. It, 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 what, what, what that implies is that Israel knew what he had done. Israel saw it. It's included in Israel's book. I believe God had them to record that for one reason, because God wanted them to compare and contrast the God they have to the God Moab had. God was saying, look at you, who you got. You got me. I heard you when you cried. I helped you when you called. I sustained you when you had nothing left. I helped you. I gave you. In fact, I didn't even just give you what you asked for. I gave you abundantly above all that you could ask or even think. You didn't ask for victory. You asked for water. I gave you water and I gave you victory. Look at what, look at what I did for you and, and, and look at what His God does for Him. When you are in your biggest defeat... Look at what Moab had to do. They were in their greatest defeat. And he felt like he had to sacrifice his oldest son. Can I tell you something? What's the difference between our God and every other little G-O-D, every other little idol? Listen, when we are in our biggest defeat, when we were in our biggest defeat, I'm going to tell you what, God didn't make us sacrifice our son. No, he sent his son. God said, I'm going to tell you the kind of God I am. I'm the kind of God that I give my seed. I give my son. I give my son. You don't have to have your son die for me. My son will die for you. And there is a distinct comparison and contrast between the God, Jehovah, the God of Israel, and every other little idol God. Can I tell you something about servant idol gods? They never are satisfied. You can never do enough. They, were, they never will help you. They, never, they always just take and take and take. But let me tell you something about our God, the one true and living God, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He's a generous God. He's a good God. He's a, he's a wonderful God. He's a loving God. He's, a, he's an abundantly gracious God. And He has given it all for us. We don't have to give it all for Him. He gave it all for us. And that makes me want to give it all for Him. When we were defeated, our God didn't demand our firstborn as a payment. When we were in our biggest defeat, our God gave His Son as a payment. He promised that He would way back in Genesis 3. Our God's not like theirs. That's the point of that. Our God's not like their God. Our God gives water in the wilderness. Amen. Let's stand together all over the building.